Welcome to Impasto, a podcast about two art school ladies discussing the fun bits of art history. I'm Michelle. And I'm Paige. And we are not professional art historians, and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Suggestions and comments are welcomed via email at impasto.pod at gmail.com. Michelle, how it be? How am I? Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just... The ball of stress is no longer a ball. It's more like a ball of yarn that's coming untangled. And it's a big mm. old mess. Oh, dear. <laughs> it's okay. I just have I just have two more months. I have less than two more months. Less than which two. Is, which is still stressful because I'm wildly behind. And my senior thesis professor called me out and was like, Michelle, what are you doing? And I was like, you know what? That's a valid question. So it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Everything's fine. So how are you, friends? I mean, things are good, uh, I guess. We had Gregory Crudson, the topic of our last episode, share our post and podcast, and I about died. Now, I think a little part of me did die, because I hit the floor. Like, when I say I hit the floor, like, I fell and was like, this isn't real. This can't be real. This can't be happening. And then... (laughs) It was happening, and um, I was shook, <laughs> for a lack of better term. We have peaked. And you also, yeah. according to TikTok, you had 11,000 views. 11,000 views on a random thrift find video. Like, I go thrifting. Like, that's, like, my happy place is amongst stinky clothes and <laughs> dusty stuff. And I had just found some really good things, and I was like, ah. I'm gonna take a little goofy video. A little. I'm in a silly, goofy mood. I'm gonna take a silly, goofy video and post it on TikTok, and then all of a sudden, it had like eleven thousand views. And now I don't know how to act. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can tell me anything. You are. Um, you are at your peak. <laughs> if this is my peak, that's real sad. <laughs> I just. I just want to say that peak of the I mean, week peak of the week How about that? i'm at the peak of the week like last week was pretty good like i can say i mean it was all right there was some stressful bits you know taxes and stuff but <laughs> we got through it yeah we got yeah. through it oh uh, yes well this week we got something special for the listeners we're giving michelle a much needed break from <laughs> Staring at things. So this week, she's just going to listen along with y'all. Of course, she'll comment because, boy, do we have a topic for you today. Caravaggio. Yes, we've talked about him in a bunch of the trivias that we've done. I feel like we've had some offhanded small conversations on his wild ride of a life. So this week, Paige, me, I am going to tell you, all of you, about it. Because, boy... That's drama. <laughs> the tea. The tea in Caravaggio's life is beyond me. Michelle, are you ready? I am very ready to listen to you teach us everything we need listen. to be taught. <laughs> Again, you've listened to the disclaimer on every episode of this podcast everyone (laughs) so what i'm telling you is the stuff that i find the most interesting like i'm not gonna tell you about 
the shit he took in 1606 that his biographer was just like what does it mean we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about that we're gonna talk about the juicy deets we're gonna talk about just the good stuff here you may know Caravaggio you may know and have seen several of his works we're gonna give a little brief brief intro to him just for those who might not know what it be and what it do he was born in Milan in 1571, his father was a mason who died when Caravaggio was six. And at the age of 13, he was sent to Milan to be with an artist and work in his workshop. It is often thought that his workshop artist was Titian's pupil, but I don't know. There's very little record of his life. So all the biographers that are piecing together things, that's what we have and we know back then it was about the tea it was about who has the most salacious details so everything has to be taken with a grain of salt and so in 1592 is when he went to rome and all of the hardcore craziness that we know about caravaggio's life starts to go down so caravaggio is known for his dramatic use of chiaroscuro and what we also learned in our art history trivia uh tenebrism which is just chiaroscuro to a absolute maximum level. <laughs> he made the technique a dominant stylistic element, transfixing subjects in bright shafts of light and darkening shadows. So his use of this light is often, he uses it to say, oh, well, this is God. This is divine light, and it dramatically shapes the pieces. So him doing that allowed for less ridiculous backgrounds, kind of what was happening at the time with the Baroque style and mannerism. That being said, mannerism was the movement that was kind of currently going on inside of Baroque, where the artists were basically flexing. They're like, oh, look how, look how crazy we can make these people pose. And it wasn't really about the subjects of the paintings. It was just trying to say oh look at me go i don't really like to look at manneristic paintings because it kind of stressed me out because it's a lot going on caravaggio's was very different than what was going on at the time which we will get to in a little bit his influence can be seen in a lot of works from the time we talked about one those artists are rubens ribera bernini and rembrandt they think they were heavily influenced by Caravaggio's use of light. And now, even today, as a photographer, we often refer to some types of lighting as Rembrandt lighting. Hmm. Which I guess we should call Caravaggio-inspired Rembrandt lighting. <laughs> but but perhaps maybe then we're, this will lead into why we remember Rembrandt in such a positive light and not yeah. Caravaggio. <laughs> so I believe, don't quote me on this, everyone. If you're doing a research scholarly paper, go and look this up before you just say, Paige, Imposto Podcast. Because <laughs> I don't think this is 100% right. But I think that he is the start of the idea of the tortured artist, like the crazy artist. Like Caravaggio was the first one that was like, this dude is whack. <laughs> okay, okay. And it has a lot to do with not only the life he lives, but the, and the work he created. So his works are incredibly violent, incredibly dark. He often paints himself into them. And 
they're just, it's a lot going on, especially for them. Everybody was violent and wild and, you know, people were getting stabbed in the street. I mean, it was a normal thing. The 1600s, like, <laughs> he was so bad that they said he was bad. So you got to think about how bad was it? Right. To be able to make it for hundred plus years later yes people are still going he was wildin yeah he was he was wild (laughs) not to mention you know the material he used Mm -hmm. right yes have contributed to his oh michelle i'm so glad you asked (laughs) we will get to that later (laughs) so i would like to take you kind of through a short timeline of some of his most famous works and then we're going to discuss his lifestyle through those times. So these these pieces are kind of a like a you can see his I guess mental a little bit more psycho and so it reflects in his paintings like the more violent they get the more violent he has become. Like we mentioned, it all really begins for him in 1592 when he comes to Rome and they believe it's because he got into a fight with somebody who got kicked out of where he was staying, which I think <laughs> is Milan. Could be wrong. There's not a whole lot of facts or records of where he was at between his stint in Milan and Rome. He was known for jumping across workshops. He was in like three or four. He was with one guy he called like Mr. Salad. Literally his name, like Caravaggio called him like Monsieur Salad. And it it means... Mr. Salad, because apparently that's all that he let Caravaggio eat, or that's all the guy ate. I don't know. But I would hate to be known in infamy as Mr. (laughs) Salad. So eventually he stopped working with the workshops because he didn't like it and he got in fights and got kicked out. (laughs) But within those workshops is where he is thought to have gained and picked up all of the technical skill. So for one in particular, some very Italian name that I'm not even going to attempt to say, he painted heads for. He also is known for having done like three heads in a day. So painting like three portraits for someone else in a day. And this is very much attributed to later in his life about how fast he works because that wasn't really a thing back then like most painters took years like da vinci apparently 16 years to paint a face (laughs) he was cranking it out he was not worried about that and then in another uh workshop he focused on painting flowers and fruit for still lifes so that's where he gets that attention to detail and we believe maybe why so many fruits and not vegetables but (laughs) flora are present in his pieces is because he just really enjoyed to paint them and they believe that both of these things also played a very key role in why he painted so realistically was because he valued a still life about being able to translate what was directly in front of you rather than making it fancy and pretty and beautiful. One of the most iconic first paintings that he did was called Boy Bitten by a Lizard. That is thought to be Miniti, Miniti, Miniti. I don't know it's an Italian name, but he was a Sicilian artist. Sicilian? Sicilian. Sicilian artist that worked around the same time as Caravaggio, and he was 16 when they first met. 
that's kind of where some of the strange talks about Caravaggio's sexuality come into play as well. Boy Bitten by a Lizard is often thought to be an allegory on touch, an allegory on love, a genre study, a study of expression. Like, there's a lot of readings into this, but I believe that most art historians that specify in this time, they think that it was just a study on the expression and the still life, since this was one of the first of his paintings that was... This length portrait, it's relatively large. All of his works are are relatively large. So this one, along with Boy with a Basket of Fruit, and I believe one other, are often thought to be homoerotic in nature, featuring young boys, very androgynous, very kind of hard to gauge the year or how old they are and which way you're swinging. But a lot of people really do believe, I guess a lot of people wanted to just slander him in any way possible. And that was just one of the biggest slanders that you could possibly throw at the time, especially for an artist who is creating art specifically for the Catholic Church. But a lot of other art historians kind of discredit that information. And it's like, well, we know that he had women lovers because he painted them too. So who knows? Maybe Caravaggio was bisexual or he just didn't care. Either way. Or maybe he just, maybe he just loved the drama. He was like, how can I piss off the Catholic Church? Oh my God. And you nothing know he pisses was. off the Catholic Church like painting young boys in a potential erotic way. No comment. We're going to leave that where it is. <laughs> the other works that were produced during his early time are things like The Fortune Teller and Card Sharps which depicted Roman street life. People that you would actually see on the Roman street. Street performers, right? Yes, pretty much, I think. I don't I don't really know what a card sharp is. I just know the painting. <laughs> okay. He you see a lot of images of gambling and just street performances, stuff like that in those types of work, and the Romans loved it. Cuz this was not a thing that was going on in Rome in the art world. Like these these were not types of paintings that were happening very often at the time so that being said like this type of roman genre painting is what really kind of boosted him and people are like i really like what you're doing we want you to work for us because at the time artists did one of two things if they were successful they completed work in a workshop or they lived with their patron their patron was giving them housing and protection in exchange for paintings So that's what happens to Caravaggio while in Rome. Sometime between 92 and 99, he does end up with a cardinal of the Catholic Church for a little bit. And then he gets the commission for the Contranelli Chapel in the Church of San Luigi de Franceschi. Franceschi? 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 Maybe. (laughs) That seems more right than (laughs) Franceschi. (laughs) <laughs> the two works that were done in this commission was the Martyrdom of St. Matthew and the Calling of St. Matthew. And they were delivered in 1600. So they commissioned it in 1599 and he delivered it in 1600, which is very shocking because I don't know if you've seen the size of a Caravaggio, but they are big. Mm-hmm. Given there's not a lot of detail in the background, but the figures have an insane amount of detail. The Calling of St. Matthew is probably one of his most recognized works. And what was so shocking and 
revolutionary about this work in particular was the fact that there was no extravagant background. The characters all look like real people. And so Caravaggio has inserted a moment, and a lot of people call it of hesitation, of St. Matthew going, who? Me, Jesus? That's what St. Matthew is basically doing. He's saying, who, me? And then the two people that are standing behind Matthew are counting their money. They are consumed with their worldly possessions. And the two young boys on the front of the table closest to Jesus aren't even looking in the correct direction. I don't even think they're looking in the same direction. So it's really highlighting that only Matthew can see Jesus. And then that ray of light, that beam of golden light, is what becomes just so impressive about his work and the depth that it brings to the painting even though it's like a wall almost immediately after the characters gives a sense of depth and a sense of belonging to like you're sitting at the next table over you've turned and you're witnessing this Mm -hmm. and a lot of people really liked this because it was the poster child of what the catholic church wanted during that counter-reformation movement which like you discussed with gentileski is they wanted art to be a middle finger to the protestants saying Mm -hmm. you don't have good good art we have good art (laughs) the next great thing about this type of work was it was helping christians to recognize and reconnect with their faith because a lot of people were illiterate at the time they didn't read so they needed the pictures to look at to go ah yes i understand after his success in the chapel commissions he then continued to be commissioned from really big families of Italy and cardinals and the Pope and etc. So just Rome's high and mighty. They're like, we love it. We want more of it. He went on to do some of his most other most recognizable works. They were violent struggles, grotesque decapitations, torture, and death. Because... They just loved that kind of work then. The most notable and probably one of his greatest paintings is called The Taking of Christ. It was done in 1602, two years after the calling of St. Matthew for the Matei family. It was actually only rediscovered in 1990. been 30 years that this painting has been back in the light since 1602. That is a long time to be that hidden is, in the dark. It sure is. Where was it? Where was this painting for it 400 years? It was in years? Ireland. It was unrecognized oh. to be Caravaggio's. But it's funny because Caravaggio has literally painted himself into the painting. So we see Jesus. We see Judas. We see two guards. And then we see Caravaggio kind of in the background off to the side. He's holding a lantern which is many believe that is him saying that the artist is illuminating the scene for it, it many people believe that as he painted the more famous he became because the the next was far greater than the last so that starts to decline around the same time that he's producing relatively well-known and beloved artworks with the death of the virgin which is depicting mary dying however this is where he begins to get pointed at and criticized for his choice of model 
So Caravaggio was relatively poor because he spent all of his money <laughs> gambling and on sex workers and on just anything other than what he probably should have been spending it on. So Mary was actually probably the most well-known lady of the night in Rome. So you know that it's bad when everybody could recognize her as Mary. So they were they went like Mm. Mm-mm. That's oh, not no. the one he to pick. Is, yeah, he's crossing a line doing that. Because, you know, women in art history paintings, we have one of two roles. We are either the saint or the, or whore. the whore. Not both. <laughs> <laughs> not both. You cannot not like make a prostitute The saint. <laughs> right. The mother of Christ cannot be <laughs> the lady of Rome. Oh no, that's a line yes. we do not cross. Oh, well, he <laughs> crossed 400 it. years ago. <laughs> he was like, he what? He didn't just cross the line. He was like yeehawing on the line. He was. He was just like jumping on it, making a show of it. It was like, <laughs> but he was known for doing this. He was known for pulling people off of the street to be in his paintings because he couldn't afford to pay for like a real model. Like, oh, I, so oh. he's like an old Picasso. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> But he was he was just grabbing who his friends were like he painted his friends he painted himself because you know he wasn't going to pay however much it costs to have somebody else sit in that probably looked the same but was less well known promiscuous promiscuous <laughs> and a lot of people had issues with that they were like you don't need to be pulling these normal people in to be these divine characters but Everybody else, like the commoners, really liked it because then they could relate to the story. And that's kind of where his uh, decline started. His decline starts because a lot of stuff started to get rejected because of this because they're like, you can't keep painting them in these divine (laughs) roles. And he's like, no, (laughs) I do what I want. (laughs) So that's what the problem was. And Plus, he started to get in a lot of fights. He was getting sued front, right, and center. He's stabbing people. They're stabbing him. It's just chaos is reigning in the life of Caravaggio. So this is where I would love to take a role into his criminal behavior. I'd love to hear it. I love criminal behavior. We're going to start talking about him up to no good. He's a bad boy. November of 1600, so the same year that he completes his Calling of St. Matthew, the biggest piece that he ever did that launched his career, basically. His patron then was Cardinal de Monte, which is who he was living with that I couldn't remember his name earlier. And he beat up a guy. A nobleman of all people. (laughs) He beat up a nobleman that was a guest of the Cardinal. He beat him with a club. Oh, And he got an official complaint to the police. So I don't know (laughs) if that means like a police report was filed because I would love to register some official complaints if that is still a thing that I could do. So then he had lots of brawls, episodes of violence and turmoil, how some historians have put it. Started to just like with his fame came the crazy. Mm-hmm. And he was often arrested and jailed in Tor di Nora. So in 1603, right after he finished the taking of Christ, he was arrested again 
for the defamation of another painter, Giovanni Balgoni, who sued Caravaggio and his followers for writing offensive poems about him. <laughs> so him and Baglioni got some serious beef. Baglioni is one that is often pointing the finger at Caravaggio for being homosexual. And there's an actual reference to this in one of Baglioni's paintings called Sacred Love and Profane Love. And it looks like it's two men on the ground and like an angel coming down, like stabbing one, I think. And I think that one of the men is painted as Caravaggio. <laughs> so he's like, love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like photoshopping in his finest. <laughs> so then his French ambassador friend intervened and was like, we're gonna we're gonna get you out of jail. We're gonna put you on house arrest instead. Maybe you're not gonna get in much trouble there. And he just was completing work and kind of chilled out a little bit. But in 1605, he then had to flee Genoa for three weeks after seriously injuring Mariano Pescoloni di Aclumoli, a notary, in the dispute over Lina. Caravaggio's model and lover. Ooh. The notary was reported to have been attacked with a sword. <laughs> this man. <laughs> causing a severe head injury. This man is just ready to fight anyone. <laughs> oh, well, it gets better because I believe following this incident, many, many, many scholars are all in agreement that he just carried around a sword. He just had a sword on him constantly. He was ready. He was, he was ready to go. He, you know I keep that thing on me. <laughs> so his patrons yet again intervened and busted him out of jail. <laughs> so then he came back to Rome and was immediately sued by his landlady. Did he get in a fight with her too? She sued him because he didn't pay his rent. Then he threw rocks through her window Mm -hmm. and she sued him again. As you do. (laughs) Bagliani is the Pete Davidson to Caravaggio in Yee's life. (laughs) Poor, poor Caravaggio. Following that, he was then hospitalized by an injury that he inflicted on himself by falling on said sword. (laughs) Like, if you're going to keep it on you... At least have like proper sword handling. Like have a guard for it. Dear God. <laughs> Put it in a sheath. Like yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so this is when the greatest problem and the greatest moment of Caravaggio's life happens. Well, not the greatest. It's probably the worst. On the 29th of May in 1606, Camassoni, a gangster from a wealthy family, was killed by Caravaggio in a duel with swords <laughs> over a tennis match. Oh, dear God. <laughs> the circumstances are unclear. However, many believe that it was a consensual duel and others believe that Caravaggio just, like, yeeted him, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> with ham. So I just- wonder if it was, you know, like they agreed. They were like, oh, this tennis match sucked. You cheated. Let's let's yeah. duke it out like men. And then, like, most likely the honorable thing would have been, like, you know, beat his ass mm-hmm. and then spare the life. But Caravaggio was like, mm, 
Well, a lot of people have said that they believe that his death was unintentional. So, like, maybe oh. they were duking it out, you know, swanging away at each other. And he accidentally hit him. And the guy just didn't recover didn't block and he had to flee he left because many people say that he was going to be sentenced to hanging many people say that he was going to be sentenced to beheading okay so a lot of people think that it was specifically beheading because many 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 paintings after this moment he's depicted a lot of severed heads and his head is always the one severed okay so So with a little paranoid Oh, girl, a little paranoid. <laughs> Let me tell you what. After this murder, <laughs> dual murder, <laughs> he did. He ran away, naturally, and just was going all over the place, fleeing an enemy. But nobody knows what the enemy was, but he always continues to run away. He's incredibly paranoid. He was crazy. And people just think that he was losing it more and more and more and it can be seen in his paintings like he's becoming unhinged and even his technique was starting to show some odd influence of that in some sort of way well one art historian kind of put it that his brush strokes seemed more impressionistic in nature you know impressionism didn't happen for another like 200 years but that's how we can look at it and understand that it was choppy. It was something very odd. Like the the light's not the same. It's very clear that he's not the same painter that he was in 1600. The Tomasini came from a wealthy family, so mm-hmm. people were big upset. Like people with some big money. It's like like a mob thing. You know, you can imagine that it is like that. But again, his patrons are trying to pull strings for him and get him out of trouble because his art was worth it. Like his, the works that he was creating, I guess, equaled out beheading uh, by the church. I mean, like not to mention, you know, you have to have a certain connection with your patron. Like you have to get along. You have to most likely a friendship was formed on Mm -hmm. some level. So I can see where like loyalties would lie. And they're like, "Mm, maybe we should try to help out this crazy person. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I feel bad for him. Yeah. (laughs) He's just he's really going through it. (laughs) So in this time, again, as he's fleeing and he's just been outlawed from Rome, he's creating work such as Beheading of St. John the Baptist, which is his biggest work. And then other things such as St. Jerome writing, which is a very popular piece that is recognizable as a Caravaggio and some altarpieces for a few cathedrals. And then he somehow got knighted. He was <laughs> he was knighted uh, and then immediately arrested and imprisoned for another brawl. <laughs> As he does. <laughs> and then I think that it was with another of the knights that he was part of. Like he the guy was wounded and then he escaped. <laughs> This man is just one after the other. And then he got expelled from the order that he was in as a foul and rotten member. So then he hides in Sicily with Manitti, which was the 16-year-old painter that he worked with in Sicily originally. So there, a lot of people who did biographies on Manitti say that 
there was this crazed character that was like following him around that would run around with a sword and he would sleep fully clothed and armed. And then at the slightest bit of criticism, he would rip up the paintings and he would mock local painters. (laughs) (laughs) He is better than everyone. (laughs) I, I am better than everyone else. And he would just, there are none if, there is like but one or two unfinished Caravaggios, probably because he was going crazy and wouldn't let anybody see it if it wasn't finished. Baglioni was one of those people that was saying that Caravaggio was paranoid and being chased by his enemies, but others believed that nobody could point out who his enemies were. And after only nine months in Sicily, Caravaggio returned to Naples in the late summer of 1609. And that's where he tried his best to win the favor of the Catholic Church once again, to give him a pardon and let him back into Rome, because he was trying to make himself seem more, um, I guess, normal to the nephew, I believe, of the Pope. There he was going to take three paintings to try and, I guess, barter for his life. Then again, that autumn, he was involved in another violent clash or an attempt on his life. They believe that he was ambushed there and he disfigured. Rumors circulated in Rome that he was actually dead then, but he wasn't. Uh, He later then painted Salome with the head of John the Baptist and David with the head of Goliath. Again, like I mentioned, showing his head was the one being decapitated and his face is the one that is plastered onto those beheaded heads. And in 1610, he was given that, I believe, either he was given a pardon or he was going to make his case. But somewhere in the middle of that, he mysteriously died in a port town. And in 2002, some documents were actually released from the Vatican vault regarding this. The One of the sources that I found said that... Since they had invested in Caravaggio and put so much on the line for his life that somebody went down just to see what was going on. Somebody went to investigate and they do believe that it was actually a hit. Some of those documents would actually support the theory that it was a sort of hitman from that Tomasani family, uh, the gentleman that he killed in that brawl. Also, There are other uh, things that they think that it could have been like malaria or uh, syphilis or something from unpasteurized dairy. There's uh, strangely no in between for that one. And a lot of other people believe and the documents support that he actually died of sepsis. So in 2010, conducted a year long investigation on those remains to find him. And they did. And they were were able to say that they believe that he died of sepsis. <laughs> so do you know what made him crazy? What was it? So what actually made him go crazy was the paint that he was working with. They believe that he also could have died of lead poisoning. And the longer that he worked with those paints, the more crazy he went. I mean, but again, that makes sense if he's dealing with lead-based paint and the more, the crazier he got, the more he painted 
and his methods were changing and that makes a lot of sense and i don't think they had you know like mental institutions or any they or any data to help them be like oh you are going crazy from this pain they were just like ah oh, he's he's violent <laughs> well just arrest him thank you for this discussion it's been great i love a good caravaggio podcast all right everyone thank you so much for listening please get us out on the socials tiktoks tiktok and <laughs> thank you um also send us comments suggestions anything you'd like to our google at imposto.pod at gmail.com Alrighty, guys, thanks for listening, and remember to uh, sheath your sword when you go to sling it around and start fights. Bye! Bye!